Connections Cast, brought to you by TDN Australia and New Zealand. Hello, I'm Angus Rowland and welcome to TDN OzNZ's Connections Cast, long-form conversations with leading thoroughbred industry figures presented by Newgate, raising top-class racehorses. My guest today is a real star, a pioneer in the syndication game who has poured more than $60 million into vendor and auction house pockets over the years and introduced untold first-timers to the sport of thoroughbred racing, several of which have been lucky enough to enjoy success at Group 1 level. An innovator, educator, and terrific communicator, Denise Martin, welcome to the podcast. We're approaching 30 years since you launched Star Thoroughbreds, and I feel like the yearling market is as competitive as it has ever been. Has it been tough sledding this year for you as a buyer? Oh, Gus, it's been very difficult to buy horses this year. And in fact, last year, I when I travelled to the Gold Coast in 2021 for the yearling sales, I spoke to a number of key people with uh, with Magic Minions that year, and they were not so optimistic it would be a, uh, you know, a great sale because of COVID. Uh, Northern Beaches lockdown in Sydney was, mm. you know, well surely still in place, or in fact, I think it had just finished. But, you know, different people who would normally go to the sales, a whole variety of people actually couldn't go that year. So I think there was a feeling that it would be um, a pretty difficult market, certainly for the sellers. Well, records show that it was... You know, it was very buoyant. It was uh, a very strong market, difficult to buy horses. And I'd said to a great friend of mine that year, uh, about three or four weeks after the Magic Minions, and in fact after the uh, classic sale as well, that I felt prices were just on a you know an upward spiral. And the person said to me, well, let's put it this way. There is $8 billion worth of travel money that had to go somewhere. And I think that really, you know, it, it to me at least, it presented um, some explanation for why people were looking for an outlet. You know, some people had started to home renovate. It was probably just before the housing market, you know, took off in a major way uh, 15 months ago. But this year has been much the same. The ownership base that has traditionally been stars area of operation, if you like, there's more competition than ever for, for those owners. Would that be a fair characterization of the market at the moment? Well, I think there is a variety of factors in play. Prize money is just extraordinary in this state, and it continues to escalate at a you know a rapid rate. We know that uh, very shortly races in Sydney will be over 150,000. Well, 10 years ago, that was a Group 2 prize money race. Mm. The one-off races, be it the Everest, the Golden Eagle, the Silver Eagle, and a number of new races having been announced over the past 12 months, just show that there is great interest in presenting um, the racehorse owner with a whole variety of options for their horses in this state. So racing has never been, in my view, in, in a better state, certainly for sellers and, you know, in some ways as well for owners. The high-end horses obviously are extremely expensive. We don't participate in that market. We're very much involved in the middle market, which to some extent has been the one that's escalated in average price most over the past two years. But it, it is difficult to get really good horses, good yearlings at the sales. But if you do your work, hopefully you come away with horses you're really happy with. 
Are you finding, Denise, that as these new races are announced and with fireworks and publicity and the average prize money is, is growing across the state, and, and let's be honest, to, to a degree, the arms race is, is driving prize money up in other states outside of New South Wales as well. Are you finding that you're attracting new owners? Is the hoo-ha translating to people reaching out to you to have their, a go at their first horse? Well, I don't know that prize money individually or the new races that have been introduced in the past four or five years in this state especially, don't know that they are the, the driving force. I simply think it's people looking for uh, another avenue of enjoyment uh, in their lives. They might be professionals, maybe they're small business operators, uh, maybe they're retirees. They're looking for something different to do. So I think it's a lifestyle decision um, and a capacity to buy horses more than, you know, the new races being introduced and somebody phoning to buy a share in a horse because they're attracted to the chance of racing in a particular race. And I suppose that speaks to the, the heart of the appeal of racing as a sport, doesn't it? Uh, ultimately, the, the enjoyment from the $5 punter all the way up to the shake in a, in a foreign country, the enjoyment of watching these elite athletes compete against one another is a key driver to involvement. When I started um, Star, when I established Star, I was fortunate to have some years to work in conjunction with the great TJ Smith. And one of the first things I think he told me on day two or three is the best part about syndication is that people can have 100% of the joy enjoyment for a fraction of the price. And I think that's telling. You can have a 5% share, 10% share of any horse, but you're as excited as somebody who would own the, the whole horse. Now, you've just referenced a Hall of Famer there, uh, Tommy Smith. I know. I, I want to talk about another Hall of Famer that you were exposed to from birth. Your father, you hail from Tasmania, and the apple of the Apple Isle's eye was your father, affectionately known as Paddy. He excelled in multiple sports, but is generally considered among Tasmania's greatest Aussie rules product. I was born in Launceston, and from a very young age, I realised Dad was, as I saw it, quite famous. Now, obviously, in a small place, you know, quite famous means you go to the football matches on the Saturday and there's a... I don't know, an attendance of 1,500 people, I'm not sure. And, you know, two or 300 of those people know your dad. I remember they used to applaud when our family would arrive at the races. And, you know, when you're really young, you think your parents, particularly your dad, is very famous. So um, I knew that dad had, uh, you know, a profile within the state, certainly for Australian rules football. But as you said correctly, he played other sports as well. And as the years went by, when I was still quite young, I guess only in my early teens or even a bit earlier than that, Dad was offered an opportunity to go and play in Victoria in what was then the VFL, now of course the AFL, and his team of choice was Melbourne. So he spoke to Mum, I seem to recall, um, and the first year he was offered a chance to go and play in Victoria, and Mum didn't want to go, quote, to the mainland. Her, her family were in Tassie, Dad's family were in Tassie, and I think Mum felt very secure with the family network around them. The following year, Dad was asked a second time to go and play for Melbourne. Mum said the same thing. And I recall it happened a third year, uh, you know, for Dad to consider um, that Mum still decided that she didn't want to go and live in Victoria. So they didn't go. 
A couple of years after that, Dad was offered a chance to go and coach in Victoria because when he finished playing football competitively in Tassie, he became a coach successfully. And when he was offered the opportunity to go and play, to go and coach in Victoria, I remember there was a lot of conversation between Mum and Dad because in those days you still had another career, you had another job. Full-time mm. coaching wasn't part of the, the landscape at that time. And for reasons I never quite knew, Dad would have been offered an opportunity to go and manage a hotel in Victoria had he taken the coaching job. I think it might have been with Footscray at the time or Fitzroy, I'm not sure. But Dad didn't want to do that. And, well, Mum, I think Dad actually might have entertained the idea, but Mum didn't want to do it, I should say. <laughs> so we didn't actually go to Victoria. Dad stayed at home. And it was then that he became involved in another um, business which was the Tasmanian agent for brand names that we didn't know back then, Adidas, Reebok and Puma. And that was a very big part of Dad's life. This podcast is brought to you by Newgate, raising top-class racehorses. Newgate has built a reputation not only as a leading stallion farm, but a leading stallion nursery. In the last few years alone, yearling buyers could have purchased stallion prospects of the quality of champion first season sire better than ready. Vinery Studs Coolmore Stud Stakes winner Exceedance, Dubawi's Group 1 winning champion two-year-old of South Africa Willow Magic, Group 1 McKinnon Stakes winner and Young Western Australian sire Awesome Rock, Cambridge Studs champion two-year-old Sword of State and Newgate's very own champion two-year-old and Golden Slipper winner Stay Inside. Newgate raising and consigning top-class future stallions. And that was part of his story that really fascinated me when he was repping those, those what are global brands, let's yes. be honest. Did you pick up anything even through osmosis at the time that possibly has helped you in your, your role at Star, do you think? Look, I didn't really understand it, I guess. You know, still quite young. I knew at the time Dad was the state manager for Shell Oil, and that was his proper job when he was coaching a representative team in northern Tasmania. And when he was offered the coaching jobs in Melbourne a couple of times, um, I can sort of remember vaguely mum and dad, you know, having a long conversation. And, and I seem to think that dad said, you know, if you don't want to go, we won't go, meaning to Victoria. And mum wanted to be with her family. And I don't know how things moved along from that dialogue to dad being asked to be the agent in Tasmania for those brand names. But I just remember as an early teenager, we had done Lop Slashingers. Nobody had yes. heard of Reebok, you know, Adidas. So because dad knew a lot of people in Victoria, he was very friendly with um, the legendary Jim Cardwell, who was the secretary manager of the Melbourne Football Club. And he introduced dad to a lot of people in Victoria. So he was well known as a very... A significant sporting identity in Tasmania and when he was asked to take on that role uh, for the three brands he thought originally he'd open a retail outlet and then he also developed a very substantial wholesale business mm. so way back then in the mid-60s television opened in Tasmania and whilst dad wasn't um, a paid employee or regular staff of Channel 9 in Launceston I remember that he would go to the television studio on a Sunday morning very often, maybe every four or five weeks as a guest commentator, if you will. And he would talk about cricket or horse racing, tennis, 
whatever it might the Olympic Games, and anything that also related to the brand. So athletics, um, you know, sporting competition sponsored by Adidas or, you know, where the brand sort of had some part to play. And I remember going to the TV station with him and Dad would have makeup put on. I'd be watching behind, you know, a screen behind a, a you know, a window and watching this um, this program. Was, I think it was the Wide World of Sports in Launceston. Watch that being filmed. And when you're quite young and that's happening, you think your dad's really famous. So he was then asked to be the ABC football commentator in Tasmania for Tasmanian uh, Aussie Rules football. And when uh, representatives of the brands would come to Tasmania, I recall the late Ron Clark was the editor's man. I think the late Peter Knights from Hawthorne in Melbourne was the Puma man. I don't recall who was the Reebok um, you know, representative in Australia, but Dad got to know some very well-known sporting people very well. They would come to our family home, and I'd go to school on a Monday and, you know, show and tell, what did you do? And I'd say, oh, Mr. Clark came to our house. Well, I sort of knew Ron Clark was very famous, and, you know, he'd, he'd created national headlines with, you know, his success at the elite level of competition. But you don't really relate it to how significant they are in Australian sports. You just knew that dad knew them and they were good mates and they came to our house. And, you know, increasingly as, as the years went on, I became very aware that dad had big profile in sport. And as mm. you've known and seen from research, he was made a, uh, a member of the Tasmanian Sporting Hall of Fame many years ago. And about 10, 12 years ago, he was made a legend. Dad passed away 18 months ago and two or three years before that he was made an icon. So he certainly had his place in uh, Tasmanian sporting history. Absolutely. And I would encourage our listeners to, to jump on the internet and, and, and see if you can find the video of Paddy Martin. It might have been when he was made a legend, I, I, I think. And true to form... He's incredibly articulate, but he also manages to get a horse racing reference into something where he's being inducted for his AFL and coaching efforts, which I think is just terrific. <laughs> uh, tell me about the birth of Star Thoroughbreds and your earliest training partner. It was while you were at the Sofitel in Melbourne that you came into the gay waterhouse sphere in sort of a, a meaningful way and an idea started to form. Is that right? I was very fortunate. I, when I lived in Tasmania, I wanted to, originally I wanted to be a lawyer. And then I thought, oh, by the time I complete, you know, the period which um, necessitates in those days, uh, working as an articled clerk, um, and then there's this amount of training, I thought, gosh, I'll be 30, imagine, I'll be 30 before I have a, you know, a real career. And that seemed a lifetime away. So then I thought that I might become a psychologist that had some appeal. And in the end, I thought, I might become a teacher. So I became, I got a degree, became a teacher for only a short number of years and went to live in England. And I had anticipated that I would continue my teaching career in England, but it was really a working holiday. I wasn't looking for an extended career. I just wanted to be able to do some work, go and travel, do some work and travel like many Australians did and I suspect still do now. So I applied to the Inner London Education Authority to teach in London. And they said, there's a vacancy at Tottenham. And I went to have a look at the school at Tottenham and I just thought, somehow we're not compatible. So mm. I gave a miss. A friend of mine was working at a major London hotel and she said, well, why don't you come and live here, work here, because the hotel offers living in accommodation and I think you'd find it enjoyable. So I started a hotel career, not really by design, just by 
I guess by accident in a way. And I remember the first day I was working as a receptionist in this hotel, a group of Americans arrived on an early flight into Heathrow and they said, uh, they came to the hotel about eight o'clock and they said, where's Green Park? And I said, I was working in Park Lane. I said, I'll just get the map and check. Well, it was about 30 metres down the road. So I think they realised I was pretty new at, uh, at that job. But that became a career that extended for over 20 years um, around the world. I went to a variety of locations to work uh, uh, in, the, in the international hotel business. I came back to Australia and had some great jobs in Australia at the Siebel Townhouse. I was in the pre-opening team of Jupiter's Casino, Sheraton mm. Brisbane during World Expo. And I was back in Melbourne at the time in the early 90s in what was then the Regent Hotel, it's now the Sofitel. And I thought that I might think of maybe developing a business on my own. I didn't know what it would be, but I thought I'd love my hotel life, but I want to see if I can do something for myself. Most of all, because I wanted to set the challenge to see if I could. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. So originally I thought, well, I might see if I can do something part-time, stay at the hotel, but do something at weekends, which would give me the experience of operating business on my own. And I thought I'll become a marriage celebrant because the Regent in Melbourne overlooks Treasury Gardens. Yeah. The, hotel, the hotel extends from floor 35 to floor, floor 50. And as I would look out from the 50th floor into Treasury Gardens every weekend, I'd see happy groups of people getting married. And I thought, how wonderful to be in a, in a career and have a job where every time you go to work, you're going to find happy people. Pretty much, you'd hope to goodness anyway, always. Yes. And I thought, that sounds fantastic. So I contacted the Attorney General's Department and I asked what was involved in the development and establishment of a marriage celebrants business. Huh? But in the material that came back to me, it was very clear that I couldn't be engaged in a business where there was a conflict of interest. But of course, hotels are wedding receptions and honeymoons. So that went out the windows. And about four months later, I had a call from a great friend of mine called Sue Lloyd-Williams with the VRC. Sue was marketing manager at the VRC at that time. And she said, we're just going to start bringing out to Australia overseas horses to run in the cup. Yes. And I said, so she said, we're bringing out um, Dermot Weld and a family called the Smurfett family from Ireland. They're bringing out a horse called Vintage Crop. We'd like them to stay at the Regent. And I said, fantastic. As now records, Vintage Crop won the Melbourne Cup. And yes. it was very sorry. And at about that time, I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to be involved in this business, not only because of the excitement of the Spring Carnival in Melbourne, but just being involved in racing. Dad had had horses. Dad had loved horses. You know, we had um, racing radio stations, um, you know, blaring on a Saturday morning when I was very young. So it was something I thought might be possible. I phoned a friend of mine in media in Melbourne and said, do you know a very good accountant who would prepare my application to establish a syndication business? And she did introduce me to uh, somebody she knew. And the funny thing was, um, I submitted the application for Star to be licensed at the end of December. And the following February, about now, in fact, I was in Launceston and I'd known Gay when I lived in Sydney, a little bit not well, but I'd known her enough to, you know, to, to have a conversation with her. So I was in Launceston and I, she knew that I was wanting to establish my company and said that she'd be very happy to work with me. And I said to Gay, um, I've just been called to the secretary's office. And you know, when you're at the airport, 
in a public place and your name is called, you think the worst. You know, mm. please come to the secretary's office, please come to the such and such office. And my name was called, please go to the, you know, the Tasmanian Turf Club office. And I thought, what's this about? And I worried that it was a family matter and might have been bad news. And it, the person in the office said, you have to phone this number in Melbourne. It was the accountant's number. And I looked at it for about five seconds and I thought, well, this is either going to be the beginning of the rest of my life, you know, my licence has been granted or I've been rejected and then I'll have to have a rethink. And he said, just phone this number. So I phoned the man in Melbourne. He said, your syndicator's licence has been approved. You're off and running. So I quietly said to Gay in the mounting yard on Nonsense and Cup Day, um, my licence has been approved. Gay had a runner in that race, 1992, I think it was, might have been 1993, called Beloco. Um, he was a short price favourite. He ran second and the horse that won the race was called Free Beer. And Gay had said the moment I told her my licence had been approved, we'll all have champagne. Well, we didn't, but we didn't have Free Beer either. So <laughs> that really when Star was established. And from that time on, uh, I moved to Sydney about a month after that. And I'd been fortunate enough to stay in the hotel at the region for three or four days at the courtesy of the hotel GM at the time. And on the very day that I was relocating to Sydney, I had all my luggage downstairs at the checkout concierge desk uh, at the, you know, the driveway entrance to the hotel. And the Rolling Stones were checking in. And I remember very clearly the doorman said to me, good God, I don't know who's got more luggage, you or Mick Jagger. And I said, <laughs> I remember I said, I win today. Did you know since 2019, the English Premier's Sale has produced 20 individual winners of Australia's open $1 million plus races? That's more than any other yearling sale in the Southern Hemisphere, including the world's best sprinter nature strip, Lost and Running, Ole Kirk, Mask Crusader, September Run and Written By. 793 yearlings are catalogued for English Premier 2022 to be held over three days commencing at 10am Sunday, February 27. Buy better at English Premier. You move to Sydney, you start up a, a syndication business in, and syndications in its nascent stages at, at the time. Harry Lawton and a few other operators have been doing it for mm -hmm. a while, but it's, it's, it's fairly new. I want to ask you, and I'm, I'm doing this totally aware of my male privilege here. How was it for two women in what was and still is a male-dominated sport? Gay was unbelievably supportive of me as I was of her. And for a time, I just thought, maybe we're Thelma and Louise here, you know. Um, it, was, it was quite extraordinary because when I first came to Sydney, um, I wasn't known. I didn't have a racing background. And I think people felt I'd be here for six months and gone. Some people thought I was initially that I was Gay's driver or her what? in the office. Well, you know, it was early days. Yeah. But, you know, very quickly we formed an association and, uh, and, and a friendship. And my business took a couple of years to, I guess, to launch, if you like, to establish. But it did fairly quickly. And... As you know, as history records, we were together for 20 years and mm. it was just a special part of my life. I, you know, I admire Gay more than, you know, just about anybody in the world. She's an extraordinary person. And indeed, again, records show that she's just history making globally, uh, you know, in the sphere of horse training. So 
he was just brilliant. I decided after about 20 years that it was probably time to, you know, to, to, to look at where Star was going. And about that time, Chris Waller was just establishing, or he had been, I guess, mm. you know, established in, in his training operation for some years, but he was just beginning to, to uh, develop, you know, his reputation as a, you know, a star trainer in Sydney. And I could see that going forward, he was probably most likely going to be a game changer in the industry and certainly a, a trailblazer, as Gay had been. And I just thought it's probably time for, you know, for, for me to ask Chris if I could link up with him. And he agreed to the operation, uh, to, to the uh, suggestion, I should say. So Star relocated to uh, Chris's stables at Rose Hill about just under 10 years ago. When I left Tullock Lodge, I left all of the horses with Gay and her team, as was the right thing to do. So she continued to train the horses there for some years. And when I moved to Chris, I bought a brand new group of horses, um, you know, nine years ago. And they're those horses that just formed you know, the initial stable of, of our horses at Rose Hill. Well, let's talk about the horses, the star horses over the years. And obviously we can't go through the laundry list of star winners, but I've picked out a few uh, highlights. And where do you start? You start with your first group one winner, Dan Glisser, a member of Dan Zero's first crop, a little plain like a lot of Dan Zero's and like a lot of Dan Zero's, very athletic. What was it like to win that first group one? Was there a vindication there or is this something you always assumed would happen with time? Look, I don't think originally, that was back in 1998, and I don't think originally I probably really understood the significance of a Group 1 win. I thought, you know, I knew that it had been explained to me that that was like winning a gold medal at the Olympics, and I knew that it was significant, but it probably didn't really register Mm. what they achieved. As it turned out, you know, we now know that, you know, she won the, the Princess Series, she won the flight stakes, the T-Rose and the Furious, went to Melbourne and won the, she, she ran third in the Wakeful. And when she came back in the autumn, she won what is now the Queen of the Turf. And then Jerry Harvey bought her for, you know, I think 650 and now money, probably $2 million. And she went to stud. But when she won, um, it didn't probably really, I guess it didn't hit home, except that the following morning, um, we had an open morning at Tullock Lodge and two of the owners arrived, uh, two Scottish a Scottish couple, and they bought this filly as their first horse. And I knew when they walked into the stable at 11am on a Sunday morning in their racing uh, attire that they hadn't been home. So <laughs> it, it, it kind of figured, I kind of figured that mm, this is a pretty big deal because Cathy and Nick you know, they haven't been to sleep yet. And he just said to me when he came in, this is, other than marrying Cathy, this is the biggest day of the life, my life for me, to think that I can have a horse good enough in Australia to win a group one. So it was special. And I guess looking back over the years, you know, and, and recording the different horses, one at group one level for us, she was really special because she just performed at that level pretty much her entire life. She sure did. And you referenced her sale at the end of her career presumably that was the first sort of big sale post racing that you'd uh, enjoyed since opening up the the star family, so to speak. Did that open your eyes to the possibilities post racing as well? Not really. Um, Mm. I mean, I buy horses to race. And when Chris 
and Gay had suggested over the years that a cult needed gelding. Um, I'd never really considered the prospect of a stallion because my, you know, my mantra is we buy horses, put ownership groups together to race those horses, and they race for an extended time. I yes. wasn't looking for a horse that would win, you know, a major race early in its life and then, you know, be moved off to stud quite quickly. It was just, you know, these horses will race until they're five or six, maybe seven, and the geldings will race longer. So I didn't really look to... Um, understand what initially what was involved in on selling tried horses or stallions or well-performed mares we just wanted racehorses you're doing my job for me Denise you've segued beautifully onto our next horse we're going to discuss who is the exact ended up being the exact opposite of what you are you are describing a, a chestnut colt by more than ready from the flying spur mare pure speed Take us through the Sebring journey from Yearling Sal to Slipper Glory because it wasn't straightforward. There was a little thing called equine influenza happening at the time as well, which must have been a heck of a thing to navigate. Well, it, Sebring is quite a, um, an extraordinary story because he was a passing at the Magic Minion sale. And when I looked at his, I looked at the, uh, at the Yearling and I thought he's a well put together Yearling. He looked quite immature, you know, the... the um, rear of the horse was higher than the wither so he had mm. some catching up to do growth wise but when I asked the vendor George Altamonte um, whether he would sell uh, sell me the colt having been a passing I said what do you want and he said 150,000 I said I'll give you 120 didn't want 120 so a day passed and then I went back the following day and the colt was still there mm. so eventually we agreed on 130 130,000. He was a very difficult horse to sell because more than ready then was mm. considered a question mark as a successful stallion, an American horse that had come here with a profile that suggested speed and really his main horse in Australia on the track was Benicio, uh, won the, the derby in Victoria with a pedigree that would suggest sprinting, you know, mm. sprinting, uh, sprinting um, colt, but he... Um, he, you know, he didn't, he didn't perform that way. So originally when I offered the more than ready colt for sale, nobody wanted him. And I think the primary, two primary considerations, one, that more than ready was a question mark in terms of success in this country. And secondly, that the dam, pure speed, was a 17 start maiden. Yes. So the <laughs> the other horse was unproven. He was very unpopular. So Gay was terrific at the time. She said to me, just put him out to, you know, to send him to the farm and then offer him again a bit later. So I completed all the paperwork to have him put back on the market in August of that year, which was 2007. And as you've just said, three weeks after that, that date, equine influenza hit uh, Randwick. And we didn't know, A, how sick the horses would be, whether they would recover. We didn't know when racing, racing was, was halted. We didn't yeah. know when would start again in Sydney and it was an extremely difficult time so uh, one of the key you know considerations for me was that I still had four or five horses to put together in ownership including the more than ready cult so you know Gay suggested that we invite a variety of people who had enough foresight to recognize that this horse had broken in well had shown the team at the farm something whatever that something was and all I used to say to owners in the years after that in September 2007 and October 2007 and the early part of November 2007, you didn't ever want to accept a luncheon invitation with Gay and me because you left with a share of a horse. 
And one of, the, one of those horses was Sebring. So, you know, we, um, we put the group together after a couple of months. Uh, he came into Randwick at the beginning of December that year, 2007. He barrier trialled. And he had his first race at Rose Hill in 2008 in what normally would have been Magic Minions Day on the 8th or 10th mm. of January. And then he just continued on from there. And it was a new experience for me because I hadn't raced a, a two-year-old colt, certainly not one with that sort of ability. And so it brought into play discussions with studs fairly quickly and the ownership group, what we should do. We had a number of studs very early after he won the, it was called the Canonbury then, and then the Breeders' Plate. I knew that a couple of studs wanted to talk to the ownership group and me. So we formed a committee of four of them, one of me, and we met with a variety of studs. And then in the end, I just said to two or three of the owners, you negotiate on behalf of the group, put the offers to the group. Four or five studs were very keen. And in the end, Widden was the successful, um, the successful stud that sought, that sought to buy the horse and he had a really successful stud career, sadly, for, you know, less years than he should have. Yes, absolutely. And Anthony Thompson spoke on Connections Cast a couple of weeks ago about the, the sale from, from his perspective. Uh, I, I, I want to ask you, Denise, what sort of a learning experience was that for you in terms of keeping a lid on owner expectations and, and sort of managing that piece? Because this horse was the clearly the best two-year-old of his year. And as you said, the offers were coming in pre-slipper. There was a lot of hype around the horse. Is there a challenge inherent in managing that from a syndicator's point of view? Well, after the first two wins, after the Canterbury and the Breeders' Plate, um, we asked two or three studs who'd expressed interest at that time to put in writing what they would offer. Mm. Um, we brought all of the owners to the stables to meet collectively. And then I said, what would you like to do? And they... They pretty much set up front straight away. The horse is more than paid for himself. He is going to go to stud for some, a sum, whatever that is. So let's go for the ride and see where it takes us. And, you know, history records that it was certainly the right decision. Yes. He was a very big sum. He earned over $2 million as a racehorse. And he won five of six starts and just got caught by the great Samantha Miss right on the line in the champagne. Because in those days, the slipper, besides produce, and the champagne uh, stakes at Randwick were run in successive weeks. Mm, that's these, right, yes. These, these days, there's a week between each. So you've got, you know, the, um, uh, you've got the, the slipper, a fortnight out of the size, and then a fortnight out of the champagne. So it was a very big thing to ask a two-year-old to run, you know, three weeks in a row, and he all but pulled it off. So they were very good because they were a measured group. They were very sensible. They'd come to an agreement that they were very happy to go, quote, to the ride to see where it took them. And as I just said, in, in hindsight, they made the right decision. So it wasn't really difficult to keep a lid on it because they knew that they were in with, uh, you know, they were in the race with a very big chance. And, uh, it you know, the horse pulled it off and and Glenn Boss came in from Hong Kong to ride the horse. Blake yeah. Shin was suspended. So it all worked out on the day. Does it give you a little bit of a... A thrill every time you see his name in pedigrees because I mean uh, he he was an exceptional stallion and his name will now continue in pedigrees for years to come that's that's legacy building stuff 
Well, of course it does, and I'm immensely proud of him. I wasn't proud of him on Saturday when Fangirl defeated Espiona because <laughs> Fangirl's a Sebring, and yes. I thought, what are you doing there? What a lovely horse you are. Go away. But, you know, he, I mean, Sebring appears regularly as the sire of high-quality horses, you know, everywhere, and he's got top-quality horses here in Sydney, you know, really good horses in Victoria. So, he did a really great job and it's just it was just unfortunate that you know he died relatively young youngish he probably had five or six years at least as you know to continue as a stallion but sadly you know he he suffered a heart attack one day and mm. and uh, you know life so you know when you look back at the good and bad days in racing and you know you 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 reflect on winning a golden slipper and think I'll always have that in my life you look back and think, you know, what a shame that we lost him relatively young. However, he's still producing great horses even now. So, you know, I'm immensely proud of Sebring. He was a great horse, great experience and did a super job at stud. The 2022 sales season is here. And if you want integrity you can trust, you need a Federation of Bloodstock Agents Australia accredited member. FBAA members are guided by a strict code of ethics, making them accountable in all dealings and giving confidence that you'll be represented to the highest possible standard. For contact details of FBAA agents, head to bloodstockagents.com.au and secure peace of mind today. Another horse you must be proud of, and he's my all-time favourite star horse, is Thessio. This horse claimed an Epsom in an historic star Quinella with Bank Robber, but that was just the beginning. What a brave, brave animal Thessio was. Look, he was just the sort of horse everybody longs to own. He was just a hero. He was brave. He was strong. He gave his all. He, um, When he was sold on the Saturday night of the Magic Minions sale, you know, I'd seen him and thought he... He reminded me of, funny enough, a little rocking horse, a little square horse. And I thought, well, he won't be a two-year-old. He'll be much later. And when the ownership group came together to buy him, I said to them all, understand that this horse probably won't be a two-year-old. I would imagine you won't see the best of him until late two or three. He could be a derby horse. Well, strangely enough, in that year, he ran in the first of the two-year-old barrier trials in September. And I'd said to the group, when we met to name the horse and for the owners to meet one another. This will be a horse for the thinking person. So when he won his five group ones, the partnership manager would often say, when we all came together, <laughs> Denise mentioned this was a horse for you know the thinking owner. So all of us know that we've been put on a pedestal that is quite special. And <laughs> I, I, I recall that as a three-year-old, he went to Queensland, you know, he won a, um, a group three, during the Queensland Carnival, he ran, I think, fifth in the Queensland Derby. And he was due to come back at the end of August uh, to, to uh, prepare. And he was another one that was, uh, you know, required to stay at the, at the spelling farm for, you know, longer than we planned. And he finished up going to the Magic Minions the following year in mm. March um, as then a four-year-old. And he ran in what was then the Magic Minions Cup over 1,400 metres. And I recall... I was coming through the airport tunnel then, or one of the tunnels, and I remember that Nash phoned me to say, this horse is in for a really big preparation. And it was really that Magic Minions in March, that was when the Magic Minions sale and race day was held that year. 
that we kind of we knew that um, Thesio was ele was elevating himself then to a whole new level of competition and you know he finished up over a really great career with five group one wins 3.1 or two million dollars in prize money and I guess in now money that could easily be six or seven million dollars with the quality of races that he won but he was just special and you said he was your favorite horse look I have you know Sebring was clearly spectacular but if I'm asked to just identify one, it's it's close to being him because he just tried whenever he went to the races and just gave us thrills everywhere from Rose Hill to Randwick to he won the McKinnon at Flemington on Derby Day. So he, you know, he won at Caulfield. Just a great horse. Oh, absolutely. And anyone who begrudges Thesio any of his wins does not have blood pumping through their heart. He allows me to pivot to the naming of your horses. His name's very clever. He was out of ozone sand and his name's an acronym for the third European stratospheric experiment on ozone. I love it. What is the naming process at, at, at STAR? Uh, and are there any horses that you look back on and go, I'm really proud of that one? I think um, I say to people when we go to name the horses, when the ownership group has come together, you want a horse that, you know, you feel proud of. Imagine that you are racing at Rambic on Doncaster Day, at Flemington on Derby Day, and that your horse is racing in front of a massive audience. You mm. want them to name something, you know, that, that sounds like a good horse's name. So I always say to people, name your colts, um, considering that he might be a stallion, unlikely, but not impossible, and name your filly to give her a feminine name so that when she's sold for a breeding prospect, you know, there's a very pretty name that represents a filly, e.g. Fiesta, e.g. Invincibella. So mm. I ask owners to come up with suggested names and we come up normally with maybe eight to ten names that the group suggests. We ask the group to name the horse and uh, pretty much always the best two or three names feature, you know, in the the highest rating for most owners. Um, occasionally it's a little bit of a, a scramble and you look at the group of names and think, where are we going to go here? There doesn't look to be anything that sort of, you know, for me really represents the quality we're looking for, but mostly we come out of it pretty well. Um, you know, last year, for example, we named a street boss cult Brasco, as in Donnie Brasco. Donnie. Yeah, yeah, love it. <laughs> we named um, a hellbent cult out of the frock, we called him heretic. Um, Good. I remember a couple of uh, years ago, we had a nicely bred filly out of a New Zealand mare called Pim's Time. We named her Aperitif. So if, you know, we're not nearly as clever as a group as the wonderful people who have always named the, uh, you know, the uh, the Godolphin horses and before Oh, that, Susan Philcox is an absolute yeah, genius. Maybe, but Amazing, amazing. So I understand, you know, that, that the um, the work involved in getting good names is very difficult, but try to come up with a name that's not too difficult to pronounce, that has some sort of relevance to the pedigree and gives the horse its own identity. If you can come up with one name, it's fantastic. Mostly you can't, but we try to. And as long as the owners feel well of the name, then we're happy to proceed. And I mean, ultimately, if there are two or three who don't love it especially, it's amazing how that changes pretty dash quickly and the horse wins race. <laughs> a lot of names look good when horses win, win races as well. Let's let's talk about a few more of the horses. And 
I love the symmetry between your first group one winner for Gay and your first group one winner for Chris because they both won a T Rose and a Furious Dan Glisser and of course Fox Play. Was there an internal yes moment when she won that Coolmore Legacy Fox Play because she was just once again she was all heart. Look, not no, not at all. I just was delighted that she'd reached that level because. Um, it was a girls only group of horse uh, owners and a number of the owners are friends of mine outside of racing. And when she was a late two year old, Chris said to me, this, you know, this filly, this Foxwood filly is a minx of a filly. I don't know if I can train her. And I said, well, you just must because she's owned by, you know, friends and, and, and people that have come together expressly, you know, as a, um, a girls only group of owners. So in his great, you know, patient style, he gave her preparation and a spell, a preparation and a spell. And then first start in her life, she won, or in fact, she ran fourth in a group race. And she just continued to progress really well. And she wasn't a big filly, but she was very determined. Oh, so I was, I was really proud of her when she got to that level of competition. And she's now with Yulong Stud producer. I think she's produced three or four yearlings. And in only talking to the stud people at Magic Minions, they said she's an absolute darling. So the minx of a, of a two-year-old filly has become an absolute darling at stud. And that's the sort of change that can happen with time. I'm trying to imagine Chris Waller describing a horse as a minx. But no, I don't, I don't think, I think I, he might have said something different, but I called it. <laughs> I, I will allow him. I will allow him not to explain what he said. I don't remember, but I don't think it's very complimentary. <laughs> no, uh, Dargento, very different horse to Fox Play in in almost every way. Look, he's one of my all time favourites. He's just a beautiful horse. He um, he won his first race at Newcastle, coming from well back in the field, just stormed down the outside. And I remember being told very early on in in Star's lives that any horse that can win its first race in its career anywhere has a future because it's not an easy thing to do. So I knew that we had a horse with real talent and he, you know, he then came to the city and won and then took himself to a very good level of racing fairly quickly. It's funny because he and another of our fillies, Fiesta, um, produced performances on a race day at Randwick that I guess over, you know, all the years that stars being in operation caused me very considerable angst because the first horse to race on that day was Fiesta in the flight stakes. And she wasn't naturally a miler, a Billy mm. by an I'm invisible. Mm. Um, Huey rode her and rode her absolutely perfectly. And before the, I guess, the two metre line, she looked as though she was going to pull it off. And she just got caught on the line and ran second, beaten literally a short half hit with a hoot coming from nowhere down the outside and nabbing her just on the line. One race later, D'Argento was well in the market in the Epsom and he had a perfect run. James McDonald rode him. And again, he was exposed probably as it just turned out, maybe a fraction early, just um, not by design. It just worked out that way. But he hit the front. He looked like the winner. And uh, regrettably for us, the wonderful Hartnell came hurtling down the outside with Huey on him and just caught us on the line. So after the race meeting that day at Randwick, I said to the owners, do not phone me tomorrow. I'm going to St. Mary's Cathedral to just have a quiet time and look up and just say, what went wrong? How can you lose two group ones in 40 minutes by a short half head? So 
that's been one of the very trying days on uh, on a race day. I understand completely people would say, you know, you must be, you should celebrate that you've got horses of that quality to compete at that level. Absolutely, we do. But when you miss out on two group ones within 40 minutes, it's certainly character building stuff. World champion sprinter, Harry Angel. With a time form rating of 132, more than Nature Strip, Classique Legend or Red Zell, is it any wonder that his first yearlings have averaged more than nine times his fee? Is it any wonder that they have caught the eye of Chris Waller, Anthony and Sam Friedman, Michael and Richard Friedman, and Seamus Mills to name but a few? They believe in angels, and why not? After all, he could fly. Tell me about Invincibella because she is, I mean, once again, she's right out of the, the star playbook in terms of longevity and the, the continuing to give for the duration of her career. Well, I work with um, Brett Howard from Rambic Bloodstock at Yearling Sale Time, and he's, he's brilliant. He works very mm. close with us to identify the sort of horses we're looking to, to try to buy. You know, his knowledge is hugely um, extensive over a long time and his speciality is yearling selection and mere matings other things as well but they're two of the things he does uh, you know unbelievably well and in the year that Invincibella was offered as a yearling um, I looked at her and I thought she was very tall and I said to Brett who'd recommended her at the sale I think she's going to be too big and he said don't think she will she's out of a Galileo mare I think she'll be, I don't think she'll be too big, especially by the time she gets to three. So we ummed and ahed and, you know, I thought, hmm, didn't know if I really wanted to buy her. She'd been mated off an $11,000 fee, service fee in Victoria when I'm Invincible was still there. Seems fanciful to think that now, that sort of cost with, you know, what he stands mm. for in these days. But, you know, I relented and I paid 185 I think it was, for her. And I came away from the sales still not, in my own mind, I'm 100% certain that she wouldn't be too big and too cumbersome. Anyway, as a two-year-old, you know, she uh, she was stakes placed in Queensland. Uh, she won at, Ram at Canterbury as a three-year-old. And the great thing about her was that as she got older, she just got better and better. And her Magic Minions mayor's success race days um, were recorded as a five-year-old a six-year-old and a seven-year-old. Yeah. So she won three million dollar races at five, six and seven. And she won her group one as a six-year-old. And I recall before she won the, the um, Tatsiara as a six-year-old, I'd said to Chris, I'm really not sure that we should continue on. I don't know if she's going as well as she has been. And he said, I would definitely keep going for now anyway. So James McDonald had ridden her and he went to Ascot to ride that year on Ascot. And so he rode her in the Dane Ripper and she won it a second year as a six-year-old in June of that year. And then two weeks later, she ran in the Tats Tiara. Chris was in England going to Royal Ascot and James was riding in England. And so Jason Collett rode her. And of course, when we look back now and know that it was Jason's first group one, mm. look, she was just a beautiful mare. Everybody who rode her loved her. She was, you know, she was very giving. She was, I understand from Chris, a lovely horse to train. She again won in Queensland, Sydney and Flemington. So, you know, she earned the owner's 3.1, I think, as a, you know, as a race mare. And then she was sold 
as a broodmare to Coolmore for 1.3 million. So when you spend 185,000 and the, the filly earns you uh, at the end of her racing life, 4.3, 4.4 million dollars, it can't possibly be a bad result. And in talking to Coolmore, the team from Coolmore who bought her at the sales, I understand she's become a lovely broodmare and she has a fantastic justified filly born last year. And she's currently, in, Invincibella's currently in fault of Wooden Bassett. So she looks as though she's going to do a really good job. How important is an Invincibella to a business like Star in that what she essentially becomes over time is a beautiful 500 kilo, 60 kilometre an hour billboard for the business year in, year out. Do, mm. do horses like that attract new owners more so than a, a horse that comes and goes? I would say the answer is definitely yes, because Invincibella became something of a hero horse. Mm. And we, uh, you know, not a large number, but we would have fan letters for her, fan emails. After really? Race. Yes. She's the equine say, version of your dad. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but look, she, she was just a genuine, lovely race mare who gave, you know, her all and she had a lovely kind way about her, you know, to handle. So a horse like that that features year after year and wins, you know, a large number of races and is very successful financially for the owners, as you said, becomes probably more of a billboard than mm. a horse that's there for a short time and then, you know, leaves, leaves racing fairly quickly. So, yes, I think that's a very fair call. She, she certainly had... Uh, had her followers and attracted other people to say, how do I get one of those? I just say, keep trying. <laughs> <laughs> keep trying. Come to me. Come to lunch with me. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to ask you about how your relationship with Chris has evolved since you joined up and, and do it through the prism of your latest star, Espiona. You, you made some comments in the TDN last week about sort of putting the dampener on the hype and, and, and let's just let her let the horse do the, the talking. When you and Chris are communicating about a horse like Espiona, how has the, have those discussions changed as he has ascended to the mountaintop uh, uh, among trainers in, in Australia? Has there been a change? Uh, my office is next door to Chris's office. Um, we tend to see each other very often um, making a cup of coffee <laughs> in, in the stay, in the uh, in the offices. But when I uh, moved my business to Chris's stable, I indicated to him that I would look after the the people, right. and I would ask him to look after the horses, and I wouldn't want to be actively involved in programming, jockey bookings, um, anything that related to management of the horse. He kindly quite often will ask me what I would think about putting the horse in this race or taking the horse to that race. You know, I, I would genuinely suggest that I was okay with that, had no issues at all. Sometimes I would offer, you know, my 10 cents worth of thought, but I work on the basis he's the best in the land. Mm. Why would I think of a better idea? So we have a, a wonderfully harmonious relationship I respect him greatly, and he does the same with Star. So it, it works really well. I don't, you know, I, would, I don't want to get involved, you know, on daily or weekly basis on what we should do and how we should go about it. When um, Espiona won at Flemington, you know, I realised that she might be very talented, and I said to Chris, 
you know, are there races for her in the autumn? And he said there are two immediately, the light fingers and the surround. And then we'll, we'll work out where we go because at this time, as he explained then, and even quite recently, he said, I'm not 100% sure what is her best distance. Is it 14? Is it 16 or further? So when, you know, it seemed as though every race follower in the country had her as the new, I don't know, dare I say, winks or the new sunline or the new, you know, whatever. Um, the bright, tree. shiny thing. Yes. I, I just thought at the time, you know, let's just go the simple path and understand that this filly looks really talented. She's won a, a listed race at Flemington on Oak State very easily in a fashion that suggests she has a lot of talent. How much we don't know, but I just let Chris manage that and know he'll handle it very well. I was at the stables when Chris trained Winks. And one of the things that I thought was extraordinary was at least externally, he displayed unbelievable calm yeah. and, and unbelievable capacity to just take it in his stride. Other people would have probably put, you know, the deck chair outside the horse's box on a Friday night to just make sure that, you know, the trainer stepped overnight watching every move for the horse. But Chris just got on with his life and what I can see and manage it really well. Whether internally he was, you know, in knots or, you know, undergoing great stress, I don't know. But from what I could see, he, you know, he just was very, he was very calm about everything. And he was before the horse ran the other day, before the filly ran the other day as well. So I think it's best to leave it to him. You know, I was sort of jokingly say, you can take all of the, the stress and all of the hassle. We'll take all of the glory. Not quite. Espiona <laughs> <laughs> leads me on to one other point. She's from the first crop of Extreme Choice. Dan Glisser was from the first crop of Dan Zero. Uh, you got into the more than readies before they were cool. You raced a dash for cash to a high level. Dane wins. You don't seem to have any hang-ups about stallions or anything that you buy horses by. Do you have any favourites or anything like that? Or are you literally looking at the horse itself? I think you have to look at the horse itself. It was told to me very early on when I established Star that you have to buy horses on type. Mm. It's the animal doing the running. The page tells you what you have to pay or what you're likely to pay. So, look, I don't have any particular hang-ups. Um, I love first season sires, but mostly I love, I love the horse. Um, in January on the Gold Coast, I bought a horse by a colt by Overshare. And he was just the most beautiful colt. He walked past and I said to Brett, if we're coming to see from, from this vendor, this colt, great. If we're not, please add him to the list because I love that colt. So <laughs> I, I try and have a mixture of, um, you know, established stars. We bought a colt by Exceeding Excel. We bought, um, we bought Kementari's only filly that yes. I loved very much. Um, we bought this gorgeous overshare colt. Um, bought a couple of hellbents because I have a belief that he will, you know, he'll be able to, uh, you know, to do the job as well. We bought, I bought a grunt colt and one of the owners said, don't like the name. And I said, you're safe. You'll be able to change it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I bought um, a trapeze artist filling on the Gold Coast and one here at the English Classic Sale. So I love first season stallions, but I don't go out of my way to only buy them. Mostly I just try and and buy lovely horses with something other than just the physical to recommend the horse. We've talked about Gay. We've talked about Chris. I want to talk about your other trainer, 
Barry Campbell, with whom you have horses in Tassie. I believe he's married to your sister, Anne. Talk to me about the Tasmanian stable. Well, it's not really, as it were, a Tasmanian stable. It's just when my parents, who now in the last 18 months sadly both passed away, were becoming very elderly, they couldn't go to the races any longer. Dad had been involved in his later years in racing administration in Tasmania, and I thought, how lovely just to have a very small group of horses that I race with friends in the colours there for dad and mum to watch, you know, on a Saturday, Sunday, if they couldn't go to the races. Sometimes in these small places, they would drive out to the race course, you know, park the 200 metre mark, and then at least watch the races. But at the very least, they could watch them on television. So about eight or nine years ago, maybe I started buying just a small number of horses and you know, it just worked out that way that we had success with this one. And then that horse was sold to stud. Philly was sold to stud. And then we had success with another one that Philly was sold to stud. So I raced the horses in Tassie mainly with friends. Um, mm. You know, they're horses that I, I race under the star banner up here. They just race with, you know, my family there and people who've known my family locally for many years. And it's a great thrill. You know, Barry does a great job. As a trainer, he's a Hall of Fame trainer in Tassie. So um, I'm really happy to have just a limited number of, uh, you know, mostly locally sold horses in Tassie. Uh, you know, we have a very good mare down there called DeRoche. I paid 61000 for her at the Tasmanian sale about four years ago. She's earned 550000 She's a Group 3 winner, multiple mm. listed winner. She'll be sold at the Broodmare sale on the Gold Coast in May for really good sums. So that'll be a lovely return for those people. So that's more really, I would say, not a hobby, but it's a little part of my life that relates to family and great friends in Tassie as opposed to the, you know, if you like, quote, the big league here in Sydney. But I'm very proud of our success. And I thank Barry for his great job for looking after the horses there. Yeah, never forget where you came from. I love that. No. No. All right, let's let's wrap it up with a would you rather and our final question that we do with everybody uh, on Connections Cast. I'm going to give you two options on a few things. You just pick your favourite. You ready to go? Sure am. Melbourne Cup or the Everest? Well, I don't know whether it's the wrong thing to say, but I think the Everest, I think it's a wonderful race. And living in Sydney, I can see it becoming increasingly significant. So very quietly, I'll just say the Everest. <laughs> Zabil or Dane Hill? Uh, oh, I love Dane Hill. Dining out or room service? I'm not a good cook and room service doesn't appeal, so I'll say dining out. Tamar Valley or Mooney Valley? Now, that's a funny question. Um, I'll have to say both because Tamar Valley has some great wineries and Mooney Valley has great races, so dead heat. Love it. And that segues on to the next one, beer or champagne? Well, don't drink very much, but I don't drink beer. I'd have to say champagne. And finally, top lot or winner's circle? Oh, winner's circle. Great. And if you were made the commissioner of racing, put in charge of racing in Australia, what would you do on your first day? Oh, look, I thought about this in times past. What would I be looking to change? Not sure that I would implement any real change. I think racing is in a great place. Maybe if I'm pressed... I would say it would be really possibly a good idea to have a, a national authority with the authority to oversee programming to ensure that both states, both big states, have their, uh, you know, their opportunity to feature 
huge races, major races at different times, so they're not competing. But I'm really pretty satisfied with racing right now. I think it's in a really great place. Denise Martin, thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of TDN OzNZ's Connections Cast, brought to you by Newgate, raising top-class racehorses. If this is the first time you've listened and you enjoyed our chat with Denise, why not go back and check out some other episodes, including our chat with Gay Waterhouse and Annabelle Neesham. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating and recommend us to friends. And of course, subscribe to TDN OzNZ's Daily Edition for the best thoroughbred news and information in the Southern Hemisphere. I've been Angus Rowland. Thanks for listening.